giant robot smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robots Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast, where we explore the design, development, and business of great products. I'm your host, Chad Pytel, and with me today is Jameson Toole, the co-founder and CEO of Fritz. Jameson, thank you for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. So what is Fritz? So Fritz is a platform to help mobile developers build applications uh, that have machine learning or AI uh, in them. And a key here is that the machine learning models actually live inside the application code and run all directly on the device. And when you do this, um, you can build much better real-time user experiences. Um, all of the data stays right on the device. And as the developer or business owner, you don't have to pay for very expensive you know, cloud GPUs to run these machine learning models. So mm-hmm. some examples of this that you probably use every day are Snapchat and their face-detecting neural networks with the mm-hmm. augmented reality lenses on them, your smart speakers that listen for buzzwords so that they can wake up and hear queries. You know, all of these devices and applications are powered by machine learning models that are running directly on those devices. Mm-hmm. It's cross-platform, right? Cross-platform. So we're focused on mobile right now. That means mm-hmm. iOS and Android. But over time, you know, we see this really exploding into IoT, everything from, again, those smart speakers like doorbells that you see now, um, all the way into self-driving cars, which essentially have you know, supercomputers sitting in the trunks to fuse all of that sensor data and detect people and lanes and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And how long has Fritz been around? Fritz has been around for a little over a year. Uh, My co-founder and I started in the middle of last year and then uh, raised some seed funding in September of last year and have been grinding away ever since. Mm -hmm. And it's launched, right? (laughs) We are launched, yep. Uh, We launched general availability for anybody who wants to sign up about three weeks ago now. Congratulations. Uh, Yeah, thank you very much. It was a a big push. You know, we were lucky to have a lot of really awesome developers who were willing to use the product when it was in early access mode and give us a lot of feedback. Um, But now we're excited to have it launched for everybody. How much experience did you have with the sort of domain and machine learning on device before saying, okay, we're going to create Fritz? So my background is actually in data science and machine learning. I was a physicist a very long time ago, uh, got interested in economics because people were a little bit more interesting to me than electrons. And then, you know, today when you start looking at, you know, the cutting edge social science that's being done, a lot of it is driven by uh, big data and just the unbelievable amounts of information that we're able to collect from mobile devices or uh, digital applications. And it turns out that the math and statistical modeling that physicists have been using for a long time is actually very applicable to the types of data sets that you would collect uh, from the web, both in terms of scale and sort of statistical properties. And so I, I transitioned from you know studying physical systems to studying human ones. And then by virtue of just sort of wanting to finish my thesis, picked up a lot of the machine learning uh, tools along the way. And had you done mobile machine learning before? So I had not done mobile machine learning before. Mm-hmm. And you know that's primarily because it wasn't really possible. Right. Um, so in the middle of last year, when Dan and I were starting to think about you know this market, it sort of seemed like it might be obvious that you would want to take these machine learning models and move them out into the world where all the data was. Uh, but it wasn't exactly clear how you would do that. Uh, and then Apple announced CoreML mm-hmm. at WWDC in 2017, and that really like opened open this floodgate of availability for actually running these models on mobile devices. For people who aren't familiar, CoreML is Apple's machine learning framework. It works on iOS or macOS or any of the Apple devices. And it is sort of an abstraction layer on top of 
you know, defining your model, storing all the parameters, and then running it against the CPU or the GPU or any other special hardware in there. And so that was a really big moment for developers because it just gave them a tool that was accessible, you know, and you didn't need to do a lot of embedded systems work and, and that sort of thing. So, you know, that was really, I think, the big moment where, you know, Dan and I looked at each other with Fritz and said, like, yep, like, this is definitely the place that, that we want to be, and it's it's really where machine learning is going. Mm-hmm. Why wasn't it something that you looked at and said, well, okay, well, Apple did that. I guess we don't have to do anything. <laughs> Well, I mean, with many problems where you have multiple platforms, mm-hmm. uh, cross-platform is, is always a pain, right? Uh, and so Cormel only works on Apple devices, but there are 2 billion Android phones plus uh, out there today, and they want machine learning too. Also, you know, Fritz isn't just a runtime, uh, so it's not just a format that you can put your models in. You know, we are actually agnostic to what the runtime is. We will support Coromel on iOS. We support Android with TensorFlow Lite and TensorFlow Mobile. And if someone comes up with a new, faster runtime in the future, we're happy to support that as well. And so, you know, we really believe that there should be a neutral third party out there whose sole job it is is to make sure these machine learning models run as fast as possible, as efficiently as possible on every device. Mm-hmm. The other thing that, that we want to do is lower the bar of entry into machine learning even lower. Mm-hmm. So we provide ready-to-use machine learning features right out of the box. So right now we have image labeling and object detection SDKs that you can just drag and drop uh, into your your mobile projects. And you know those models have been optimized by Fritz already, so that they run in real time on a wide variety of devices. And you know you don't actually need to know anything about machine learning to get started, but you can add those features to your app really mm-hmm. easily. I didn't realize that under the hood, when it makes sense, you're using the platform specific. Thing. In, in that sense, it may not be a perfect analogy, but it strikes me a little bit like Unity, if you're familiar with that, where like, you know, on Apple devices, they're using metal and on other devices, they're using whatever will be faster and native for them. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I mean, you even see this in just sort of general application development with frameworks like React Native, where right. you can use a single language and a single framework uh, and then compile to you know, the other native frameworks for your, so you can have standalone apps on each mm-hmm. one. So how has it been so far? Uh, it's been a wild ride, uh, you know, but the coolest part about our business and, you know, this industry right now is that the things that people build with mobile machine learning are, they're like magic, mm-hmm. right? And for us, we get to build these tools and yes, it's a lot of hard work. It's a lot of deep tech, but when you do this and you give them to people, the things that they build on top of them are, are really incredible. Um, and you know, we've been really surprised actually even at the, at the breadth of use cases. For example, we're working with one app developer. Um, this is a more fun toy example, uh, but he's got an app called Instasaber. And essentially you roll up a piece of paper if you have one around your office, put it in front of the camera, and the camera will detect the rolled up piece of paper and then estimate the position of which way it's pointing. Mm-hmm. And a lightsaber appears you know, on your screen, complete with sound effects. And so you know, this is sort of a toy now, but you can imagine how user interfaces will change when you can track the positions of arbitrary objects, whether mm-hmm. it's your hands or, or some other thing uh, in the future, and how that will sort of move into augmented reality and mixed reality use cases. Mm-hmm. So when you were first getting started and it took you almost a year to launch, it seems obvious to me, you know, machine learning is a big area, big surface area for what you could do. How did you as a team approach, okay, here's what we're going to do. And did you have an expected time to launch? Did you set deadlines? How, how did that work? 
Yeah, I mean, we definitely had internal deadlines and sprints and goals. Um, you know, we believe strongly in shipping stuff and iterating on it. So while we didn't launch general availability until a few weeks ago, you know, we had people using the platform from almost day one mm-hmm. and giving us feedback on, on all of those versions. And that can be a little scary sometimes because you know that you could make this flow better or this user experience better, or you have all these workarounds for things. But at the end of the day, the feedback is so much more valuable, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so we decided to keep that early access program going and, and try to uh, expand it as much as possible. In terms of deciding what the product will do and what it doesn't do, um, I think that's a really important exercise, actually, for founders or, or developers. And so early on, we decided you know, we weren't going to do training. So there's sort of two phases of machine mm-hmm. learning development. There's the train your model, and then there's the inference phase where it's deployed and sort of making predictions. And, you know, we felt that, first of all, there's a lot of great tools out there, actually, to train your models already, both on the cloud or, you know, even on your laptop. And so we didn't really want to compete there. Um, We just wanted to integrate with those. And every data scientist or machine learning engineer has a very sort of specific workflow, and we wanted them to be able to keep that. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we decided we're not doing anything with training. We're going to take over after models are trained or after you found a model and link into, integrate with all of those frameworks so that developers can take that model and automatically get a version that is optimized for and ready to be integrated with a mobile app. And so we take over there and then help with the deployment, optimization, and management afterwards. Mm-hmm. So you and your founder both have engineering backgrounds? Yeah. So uh, my co-founder, Dan, was you know second engineer of HubSpot. He's been in the Boston ecosystem for, mm-hmm. for a long time, you know, building and running engineering teams. That's very helpful because we're both engineers and we're building a developer tools company. Mm-hmm. And so we know the pain points. Um, we know how to speak the language. Now we also both make sales calls, but it helps to have that technical background when, when you're in the room with other developers. Yeah. Well, how are you thinking about and, and approaching the other needs of your business that aren't you know, your title CEO. So I assume you're doing a lot of that. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, everybody is responsible for everything in an early stage company, mm-hmm. right? That's one of the things that I like most about uh, startups. You know, I mean, I spent a long time in academia and the rate that I learn new things is orders of magnitude higher today, even than mm-hmm. it was when, when I was in school. And so, you know, we have four full-time employees here in Boston, uh, all engineers, and then about five part-time employees that help us out with various other functions. But, you know, we are all responsible for sales, for marketing. We have a developer community. It's called Heartbeat. And, you know, there's a Slack group and a newsletter and open source applications that people can can grab and get started with. And everybody who works at Fritz knows that, you know, they're responsible for contributing to that community as well. And, you know, it turns into actually a really great bonding experience, too, Mm -hmm. uh, because you just see the cool stuff that people get to build and what they're excited about. And that energy kind of feeds on Mm -hmm. itself. So you've worked with your co-founder, Dan, before. Yeah. We met each other actually at a company called Jana Mobile, um, actually like literally a block away from Mm -hmm. the studio right now. (laughs) Worked together for a little over a year and then decided uh, we wanted to do our own thing. And so when it came to starting Fritz, how explicit were you with each other about what roles you were going to have and what titles you were going to have and what your areas of responsibility might be? Yeah, so that was pretty much day one. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we had worked together for a little over a year. We realized that we had a lot of the same opinions about the way to build and run companies. And so, you know, that piece was kind of already taken care of. But I would have had a lot more conversations if we hadn't already gone through Mm -hmm. that experience together. And then, you know, the way that it actually worked was... 
We started a different company in the beginning. Uh, it's a company called Warehouse. It was essentially commercializing some of my PhD work, um, but you know that was selling location data analytics software to mobile network operators. So totally different business, completely different customer. You know, a lot of the technology was there. I knew it worked. I developed it, uh, and you know, had been vetted by research journals. And so we sort of sat down in the beginning, though, with that company, and and very explicitly set roles and responsibilities mm-hmm. and, and titles and, you know, had those difficult conversations actually weren't that hard mm-hmm. uh, initially, and it made it a lot easier to go forward. And then, you know, after about a year of working on Warehouse, we kind of looked at the market, the industry, the customer base, and, and realized that sales cycle is so long when you're selling to, you know, major telcos mm-hmm. um, that, you know, it just wasn't this fast-paced, high-growth business that that we really wanted. And we had been playing around with these other technologies like machine learning on mobile devices, and it just was pulling us a lot harder. And and so, you know, we we had to sit down and have a conversation and say, what do we want to do for the next 10 years? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, you know, Warehouse still exists, have customers. Like I said, the technology was developed a while back, so there's not too much maintenance that we have to do there. But it really just took sitting down and, and having that conversation. And, you know, in our case, it turned out we decided we really like working together and we wanted to keep doing that. You know, finding a co-founder is so hard uh, that there was just like the thought of going and getting a real job and then finding a co-founder down the road mm-hmm. <laughs> again just seemed so daunting to me that I was like, absolutely not. Like, this is this is the way it should work. And then, you know, we were just so excited about this different technology that it made it pretty easy. Yeah. You didn't immediately jump into fundraising or did you? Um, with Fritz, we built a demo mm-hmm. prototype, you know, make sure the technology could actually work, and then uh, started some very earlier customer development conversations around that. But we did start fundraising immediately with that, you know, partly because we had spent a year bootstrapping Warehouse. And while we did have some revenue, like, I needed to pay my rent. Right. <laughs> so why did you bootstrap Warehouse but then decide to take investment for Fritz? A couple reasons. One, you know, financially for me at least, I had more runway. Mm-hmm. I, I budgeted things out for uh, you know how long I could I could survive when we were starting and, and bootstrapping warehouse with with no salary, and then uh, you know we were getting towards the end of that right. <laughs> with with Fritz. But the other piece was just sort of the way that the business models ended up working. You know, with, with Fritz. It is a developer tool, and we're taking a very grassroots, bottom-up approach. And, you know, that means investing early on in things that don't directly provide revenue. So Mm -hmm. building that developer community, you know, having a free tier that people can get on and and start tinkering with in their spare time. And eventually, you know, those hobby projects either end up in your job and in the app that you do most of the time, or they end up growing into their own you know, companies over time. But like, that's an investment that, that you need to make. And there's not always revenue on, on the beginning side of that. And so it just made more sense to fund that upfront mm-hmm. with VC and capture that community early. Did you find that in talking to investors, they understood what kind of company you were going to be? Yes. So our lead investor is ENIAC Ventures out of New York. They also have an office in San Francisco. Funnily enough, that was literally the first investor that we told about Fritz. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just so happened that that Vic Singh, who's our partner there, you know, he had a company because, you know, in addition to being VC, he rightly, I think, realized he wanted to operate. So he knew how to advise the, mm-hmm. <laughs> the companies that he sat on the boards of. And they had this exact technical problem that we were, were trying to solve. And so he just got it 
immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, ENIAC has been in mobile for a long time, both developer tools and in applications, and they really understood that. And I think today, especially with like GitHub getting bought for seven and a half billion dollars, like people know how valuable developer tools can be, yeah. and it's becoming a lot easier to to show that to investors. Yeah. My understanding is investors are more and more getting it and understanding it and that the market of developer tools and understanding that they're sold from the bottom up instead of top down seems to be becoming pretty well understood and people are comfortable with that in the market, it seems. Yeah, totally. And the other thing that we brushed against uh, a little bit in the beginning was that we started talking about this idea of AI on the edge, meaning artificial intelligence or machine learning running on device as opposed to in the cloud. Mm-hmm. So early on that, you know, a lot of the investors that we talked to had no idea this was a thing. Like, they, you know, they'd heard of AI before, but they had just made a bunch of money in the cloud. <laughs> and we yeah. sort of show up and say, the cloud's dead, forget about it, you know? And they're like, right. what do you mean? Um, and so that was a bigger challenge for us to explain or find the true believers, I guess, um, mm-hmm. than, you know, explaining what a developer tool was and, and how that business would work. Mm-hmm. Why does it make sense to do it on the edge? So there's three big reasons which I alluded to uh, before. The first and foremost, though, is, is user experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you want to do anything in real time, you know, think about real-time video applications. Streaming live video to the cloud, processing it, and sending it back down to your phone will incur a fairly large lag. I mean, mm-hmm. in the case of a self-driving car, the car will hit the tree before right. the cloud tells the car that there's a tree in front of it. But you know, if you think about any application that uses its camera for live video to do that augmented reality you know, type user experience, uh, it would not be fun if you had to send all of this data to the cloud and then wait a minute and a half to see if your you mm-hmm. know, Snapchat or Instagram post is what you want. So you know, that's really, uh, I think, driving a lot of this. Um, it also enables these sort of ambient user experiences. So on the new Google Pixel 2 phones, for example, it's constantly listening to audio around you. And if there's a song that's playing in a bar, it's automatically looking that up mm-hmm. immediately. You don't have to like open Shazam or another application to, to do that. And so it's just putting information right there uh, at your fingertips without having the user having to initiate an action, I think is, is really important. And then you know that leads very nicely, I think, into the second big point, which is user privacy. So it's pretty scary to have your phone listening to all of this stuff at all times. But in the case of that feature, the audio actually, all of that stays on the device and the right. processing stays on the device. And if you think about Apple's Face ID feature, you know, yes, it's using a neural network to scan your face, but that stays in an encrypted vault. Right. And Apple never sees copies of everybody's face. And so mm-hmm. putting machine learning models directly on the device that's capturing the data is a way to provide people with that great user experience that uses all of the machine learning uh, while keeping data literally in, in the hands of those users. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the last piece is, again, on the business side of things. It is not cheap to get instances of GPUs or you know Google's TPUs in the cloud. I mean, we're talking like six, seven dollars an hour uh, for mm-hmm. some of those larger ones. I mean, getting close to minimum wage, right, <laughs> for uh, for cloud services. And so to the extent that you can offload that processing down to a device, you don't incur the bandwidth or the compute costs. Mm-hmm. I think Apple even says, like, we have a billion <laughs> devices out there. That's an incredible number of CPUs and GPUs mm-hmm. available to us to do all this stuff. Why wouldn't we spread yeah. it around? Yeah. So as you think ahead or even just today dealing with things you need to do for your business, like what are some of the challenges that you're facing? Yeah, so I think the biggest one right now is 
both lowering the bar of entry into machine learning, it, it's still very scary to a lot of people, and rightly so. I mean, mm-hmm. tools like TensorFlow are incredibly powerful, but they're really confusing. You know, like I've been doing this stuff for a long time, mm-hmm. and there are still a lot of instances where I'm just like, I do not know what's going on mm-hmm. <laughs> with this. And so it's hard to get into it. It's also hard, you know, even if you realize that you can solve a particular problem with machine learning, the pace of academic research is so rampant that. You know, you spend a week researching a topic and find a paper that, you know, you think comes up with an algorithm to, to do what you want. By the time you're done reading that paper, there's like six more papers mm-hmm. <laughs> that do it a slightly different way or a better way. And so it, it's hard to kind of get in there and, and understand, you know, from a planning perspective even, just like what tools do I need? How long is it going to take me to scope this project out? Is it feasible? And so our goal over time is to do that heavy lifting on the behalf of these users and say, mm-hmm. you know what, we know that object detection is a solved problem. and We know the models that work well on mobile phones. We will just train it for you and give it to you, mm-hmm. right? And over time, we can offer ways to customize that on people's own data sets and, and whatnot. So you know, that's a way that we really want to lower the bar there. And then the other piece of this is all about like inspiration. So you know, I've talked about some of the cool experiences and applications that you can build with machine learning, but we want to really highlight those and make heroes of the people that are doing that stuff um, because it's hard and because what they're doing is, is so great. And I think that helps inspire other developers to say, hey, I know you can do this particular thing you know, with a machine learning model. What if I combine that with, with something else? So you know, for example, uh, there's this app called Panda that I think might have come out of YC or something, but you know, they took that Snapchat-style mixed reality, you know, augmented reality interface, and they added one tweak to it, which was another machine learning model that could detect specific words. So when you said the word Panda, a panda appeared on your face. Mm-hmm. Or when you said, you know, the word queen, you got a crown on, on your head. And, you know, those little moments of joy really resonate with users, and they come about by, you know, continuously combining and iterating and chaining together all of these different machine learning models. Mm-hmm. So what do you need from the listeners? (laughs) What are you most looking for now? Yeah, so I I think, you know, we've tried to put something for everybody out there. Um, So, you know, if you are a mobile app developer and you want to start putting machine learning into your your app, uh, you can go to fritz.ai. You can sign up for the product. We've got these machine learning features out of the box, you know, image labeling, object detection. We're adding more, you know, every couple weeks. Mm -hmm. And you can just start using them today. If you're a little bit more advanced and you've already got your own custom machine learning model, uh, which you've either found or, or trained, we can help you manage that in production. So collect analytics to make sure that it's running at a good frame rate across all these different devices. You can do over-the-air updates and versioning to those models as you improve them over time. Uh, so you can use Fritz to manage the custom models there. If you're not quite ready to dive in yet, uh, but you want to get started, we have Heartbeat. So if you go to heartbeat.fritz.ai, that is articles, tutorials, you know, spotlights on cool projects that people are doing. And it's a great way to sort of get started, get some code snippets, and just sort of start figuring out exactly what you can do mm-hmm. with mobile machine learning. So what's the pricing for all this? Uh, so all of this stuff is free today. You know, we will always have uh, free tier, free usage. You know, that's, again, you know, the, like, the way that developers want to use tools. I've used a lot of free tools and then eventually realized this is great. I'm willing to pay for this or I have enough you know, traffic to, to pay for this. And so over time, you know, we'll be rolling out mm-hmm. 
you know, those paid features, more advanced yeah. analytics, higher usage. That's so what is it correct that there's literally no way to pay you right now? <laughs> uh, I won't say literally. <laughs> <laughs> if people come to us and, and they say, you know, we have a lot of users on this app already and we need all these advanced mm-hmm. features, you know, come talk to us and, yeah. and, you know, we can figure out what that really looks like. How have you approached pricing? Like, what is your thought process behind just having a free tier and everything being free? Yeah, so A, we do get value out of having people on the platform. Mm-hmm. First of all, like we don't claim any ownership over the models that people upload. So we know that it's very valuable IP for them. In fact, we also offer like protection so you can encrypt models when they're on devices. So we don't own any of those models, but what we do collect is performance information. So just mm-hmm. sort of how fast, how much memory do these models use again across, you know, the hundreds of different devices. And we can use that over time to provide recommendations to developers to say, you know, hey, by the way, your model's not working on these phones. There's a bad user experience, so you should probably do something about that. But also, you know, when you've seen a dozen or more different image labeling models running on devices, you know, we can start making recommendations about where performance could be or should be. And so over time, even people that are not sending us a ton of traffic, don't have a ton of users yet, that data is very valuable, sort of just how their model is performing because it allows us to help improve their models over time. Mm -hmm. I also imagine that there's going to be two sets of competitors. There might be competitors who are like saying, oh, we have the same idea and we're working on the same thing. But then also you're going to continually compete against the native platform. You know, Google's providing TensorFlow and Apple's providing CoreML. And there's probably a certain momentum to someone saying, well, that maybe works for us or something like that. So having something free and getting as many people using and familiar with it, I'm sure is probably part of your reasoning, right? Yeah, definitely. And, you know, at this point, most people don't say that this is <laughs> this is great for me. I've had such an easy time getting this to work. Yeah. Um, you know, it's still, it's the wild, wild west out yeah. there. Um, but yeah, you're right. And, you know, Google does have uh, some tools now within Firebase. They have MLKit. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, again, it only supports TensorFlow. It doesn't support CoreML. Mm-hmm. So over time, we just want to be friends of developers, right. right? And provide them the resources that they need and just the time that they need to figure out what solution is right for them. And it's on us to make sure that our product is good enough that they want to use it. Right. And eventually want to pay for yeah, it somehow. exactly. Right. Yeah. You know, I think that that's not that atypical for like a seed VC funded company, particularly in the developer tool space to come out and have only a free tier. Sure. I mean, right here in Boston, right, Crashlytics started mm-hmm. zero to tens of thousands of developers in 11 yeah. months before getting bought by Twitter, right? Yeah. You know, Firebase has a similar story mm-hmm. of you know not raising a lot, having a ton of right. traction early on. And You know, we didn't take funding with our product Hoptoad, which was an exception catching service, mm-hmm. the, fir- the first one, but we launched free. We got tens of thousands of users because we solved a real need and we were the first exception catching mm-hmm. service. The mistake we made was that we were way too generous with the free mm-hmm. tier once we started to layer on the paid model. And we aggressively grandfathered in previous users into mm-hmm. the free tier. And it became hard to support the product in the way that we wanted to as we grew because we had tens of thousands of free users taking up a lot of resources for versus the far less, but still a good number of paying customers. Yeah, And making that transition required us to make some hard decisions that, in retrospect, weren't as aggressive as we should have been. Was that the plan, like, from the beginning? Or, like, you know, when did you start really seriously thinking, okay, well, 
after we have a good base of free users, we'll start converting them. It wasn't, that yeah. was part of the problem <laughs> is that it wasn't super intentional and we also didn't have outside funding. We were bootstrapping it on our own. And so there was no external pressure to sort of say, you know, we really do have to start charging and be yeah. aggressive with this. So it, it was entirely free. And then we launched the first paid plan six months mm-hmm. later. But everyone who was on a free plan, it was free. It was only paid to get new features. Yeah, I mean, you know, we've been thinking about this from day one, mm-hmm. uh, just honestly because of cautionary tales like this. And the way I think about it is is really the idea that it is on us to build a product that is valuable enough mm-hmm. that people will will pay for that. And I certainly think in the case of machine learning and deep learning, it's very deep tech, right? Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of really hard problems to solve. And there are also problems that are orthogonal to the real end goal of most companies, which is to provide a great app, a great user mm-hmm. experience. And you know, to the extent that we can negate the need to hire a dozen PhDs, um, sorry to all my PhD friends who are <laughs> <laughs> looking for, for those jobs, uh, but you know, Google and Facebook and whatever, they can do that. They can hire thousands of PhDs right. to just work on these problems, um, but most companies can't. And so you know, we think that there's enough room to provide a valuable service that you know, people will pay for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so one question, you know, people come to you to build their ideas out, right, and mm-hmm. to make them into a reality. Uh, as someone who sees a lot of you know, new ideas these days, what are people asking for in terms of you know, machine learning and, and AI? This would be a made-up statistic, but I, I could say something like 75% of people come to us and want to incorporate machine learning in some way into their idea. But one of the things we struggle with is it's often very artificial. Like They don't understand what they actually need to do for their product first and what the product will even be. So we need to make sure that the product is something that solves a job that customers actually need to hire a product for. So we often will take it back to first principles and build very rapidly prototypes that we test with real people. And you don't need machine learning in order to do that. Mm -hmm. You can fake it all out. Mm And then once we have that and using design thinking to come up with, you know, a really great product that people will love to use, well, then you have the issue of like, maybe we've eliminated what you needed a machine learning for in, the, in your n- initial idea. But even if we didn't, there needs to be a baseline. And so we're often not even really getting to real machine learning. We're building the baseline of like the simple algorithm that is in the MVP mm-hmm. that then we go on to improve over time. So people often overestimate how close they are to a real product that is going to be a smart whatever. And often the journey to getting there takes time when you're really trying to create a product that is genuinely useful and innovative. So the areas where we see when people have a new idea, that's the case. So generally when we're applying real machine learning to the problems that we have. It's when people come to us and they say, we have an existing product, existing data, existing users, existing customers, and we're having these problems and we're thinking of solving them in this way because then they're usually actually ready for it. So I think sometimes we end up letting people down in the (laughs) beginning. (laughs) But yeah, I I think that's the reality of a lot of early products. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And I mean, better to let them down early uh, before they <laughs> right. spend a whole bunch of resources and time to figure that out. Uh, but yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Machine learning is not like a magic thing that you can sprinkle on any product and just make it amazing. Right. Um, it's the result of very thoughtful effort to figure out what do we need to do and is machine learning the right tool to, to solve that problem. Beyond machine learning, 
how do you think about the whole AI landscape, either at Fritz or just in general? Mm. And how do you think it comes into play for the products that you're offering or the products that people are creating? Yeah, so there's this idea of the next sort of wave or the next type of software development, software mm-hmm. development 2.0, where you have these machine learning models that can replace thousands and thousands of lines of procedural code with you know millions or tens of millions of parameters. Mm-hmm. And it's subtle, but it has big changes for the way that software is is developed. So you know, for example, on a natural language processing product, you might have had all of these if statements, right? There were different rules to try mm-hmm. to tease out what was going on and respond appropriately. And all of that just might get replaced by, by a neural network. And one of the you know, ways that this changes things is that before you could go on Stack Overflow and find you know, a snippet of the exact if statement that you want and modify you know, something there and now it works on your thing. You can't just go into a neural network and modify two mm-hmm. parameters and have it do a new thing. I mean, it's just not going to work anymore and it's certainly not going to do what, what you wanted it to do. And so that changes the way the software development is done. There's also some other neat properties where over time as you improve things, the runtime stays the same because it's the same number of, of parameters. So the accuracy mm-hmm. could go up, but if the model architecture is the same, nothing about the, like it's all constant runtime constant memory time and that changes the way the software is is developed and so for developers specifically i see more and more and more having to start learning a little bit about how this stuff works um, at least how to use it you know i don't know how a car works but i can drive one right mm-hmm. and that's part of the reason why we you know wanted to start fritz is to make interacting with machine learning and ai feel more like interacting with a regular old developer toolkit mm-hmm. because reading a bunch of research papers and, and diving into a bunch of matrix multiplication and, and math that no one's done in years, like doesn't seem like it's going to be the way forward for a lot mm-hmm. of people. And so, you know, we want to focus on that. And then the other piece, the sort of experience and user piece, you know, we had a couple very specific rules when we were looking at our branding and sort of, you know, how we wanted the company to feel. And, and the big one was, no robots. <laughs> like mm-hmm. our logo is not going to be a robot <laughs> and it's not going to be like a brain with, mm-hmm. with things in it. And I think that there was sort of this initial hype cycle around machine learning and AI where everyone was just adding smart to mm-hmm. the front of whatever they were building, right? Smart toaster, smart mm-hmm. calendar. And that I think is the wrong way to approach this. The right way to approach this, I think, is you want to build an experience that elicits like hopefully a good emotional response. And machine learning can help do that. And if you do it right, you don't even notice it. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, now people don't talk about smart cameras. They just talk about cameras. But all of the cameras can detect faces and they can detect surfaces to do augmented reality. They can, you know, use style transfer to make it look like Van Gogh painted your photo. And that's just what a camera is now. We don't call them smart cameras. We just call them cameras. Mm -hmm. And over time, I think the best use cases for machine learning and AI will just sort of become the things and sort of the baseline for what we think of as opposed to a smart plus thing. Yeah. You mentioned the Fritz.ai website, but if people want to get in touch with you or follow along with you, where's the best place they can do that? They can certainly send me an email, jameson at fritz.ai. My Twitter is Jameson the Crow. I hang out in Boston a lot, so if you're here, <laughs> you might see me on the street. Cool. Well, Jameson, thank you for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. So that about does it for today's episode. Thank you for listening to the Giant Robots Smashing Another Giant Robots podcast. This episode was brought to you by ThoughtBot and produced and edited by Tom Obarski. If you have questions or comments, email us at host at giantrobots.fm. And you can find me on Twitter at cpytel. Thanks for listening and see you next time. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. 
We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, let's build something great together.